This is an ABC podcast. On the program, the RSPCA announces it will remove its endorsement of pet food containing kangaroo meat, citing concerns about animal welfare. But professional shooters say they've been unfairly targeted. If it has a joey, you dispatch it as to the code of practice, which is decapitate or or, uh, a single blow to the back of the head. And predictions the Indigenous food industry could grow into a business worth billions. Uh, there's a lot of prediction that it can grow into like a, a $20 billion industry with by 2035, and we're really at small scale right now of around $100 million. So there's a huge opportunity. Uh, there's retailers around the country that are screaming for this, people around the world. I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country. The RSPCA has announced it will remove its endorsement of pet food containing kangaroo meat, citing concerns about animal welfare. Kangaroos are not farmed in Australia. The kangaroo meat you find on the supermarket shelves in pet food and served up in restaurants comes from kangaroos harvested from wild populations. The RSPCA said the move followed examination of its sourcing practices, including its retail operations. Animal activists have praised the move, while professional shooters told our reporter Kimberly Price they've been unfairly targeted. And just a warning, some of this information is quite graphic. It is an intensely cruel exploitation of wildlife among, among the cruelest. Member and former president of the Australian Wildlife Protection Council, Peter Highlands, said the RSPCA's concerns surrounding animal welfare could stem from the killing of joeys. Babies are beaten to death, the young joeys. They hold them by their hind legs and then smash them down on a hard surface or they're beaten with a a bar um, across the head. That's the way they're meant to be dispatched by law. But Bendigo West professional kangaroo meat shooter Glenn Cole said his industry should not be labelled as cruel to animals. There is a larger number of non-professional people who do not do an accuracy test, do not stick to a code of practice, shooting kangaroos under the authority's control wildlife. And that's where I believe the problem exists with the cruelty side of it. Mr Cole says the professional shooting industry is tightly regulated and follows the National Code of Practice for the shooting of kangaroos and wallabies for commercial purposes. So you go and inspect it. If it has a joey, you dispatch it as to the Code of Practice, which is decapitate or, or uh, a single blow to the back of the head. Or as I do, anything that's got fur on it gets shot. The Wildlife Protection Council is worried about kangaroo populations and fears various species will become extinct if shooting doesn't cease. Mr Highland says the RSPCA's move is a step in the right direction. I'm an expert in um, animal population numbers and what I can tell you uh, is that kangaroo populations across the Australian continent are not increasing, they're declining rapidly. But Mr Cole says overpopulation is a major problem where he shoots. The evidence that I'm seeing, the numbers are increasing. This year we had 127,850 kangaroos to be able to be culled. We're not going to get anywhere near that owing to the wet weather. As of the 30th of June, we only did uh, 40,000 kangaroos. 
the RSPCA said it is opposed to the killing of wild animals for commercial purposes that is carried out as part of a wild animal management program that meets certain criteria. But Mr Cole says the charity's endorsement of kangaroo meat in its products was against its policy in the first place. And far as the RSPCA pulling the meat from their, from their um, shelves, good luck to them. That's a commercial decision by them. And looking on their website, they technically shouldn't have had it there because they, they can't commerci- commercially use kangaroo or uh, wildlife products. It's in their own policy. But despite the pulling of kangaroo meat from RSPCA products, Mr Cole says his sector will not be tarnished. Not one little bit. The industry can't get enough. Australia-wide contacted the RSPCA for an interview, but they declined instead sending a statement and it reads, RSPCA is opposed to the killing of wild animals for commercial purposes, for example food, unless that's carried out as part of a wild animal management program that meets certain criteria, including justification to mitigate negative impacts caused by the animals involved. This includes that management activities should only use methods that are humane, target-specific and effective, applied in the best possible way by trained and competent operators. Based on the information available, there is insufficient evidence to demonstrate that commercial kangaroo shooting meets all of these criteria. The RSPCA will continue to work with the kangaroo industry and animal welfare advocates to ensure the best possible welfare outcome for these animals. And thanks to Kimberly Price for that story. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. In some good news for the flood-torn Northern Rivers region of New South Wales, Norco has announced it will rebuild its iconic ice cream factory on the original site on the banks of the Wilsons River in Lismore. The Dairy Cooperatives Board has agreed to accept a $35 million federal government grant, despite previously raising concerns that it was not enough to fund the rebuild. Mick O'Regan asked CEO, CEO Michael Hampson why it took so long to accept the government's offer of a multi-million dollar funding. Well, we're a small 100% farmer-owned dairy cooperative in northern New South Wales and Queensland. We don't have access to offshore capital markets or, or stock exchanges, etc., where us to raise money. We raise money from our farmers and, and of course, banks. We're, we're dealing in a world of hyperinflation at the moment where these costs of these facilities uh, and rebuilds, etc., are costing a lot more than any of us might want to have thought about six months, 12 months, nine months ago. So we have to, we've had to do a bit of work in relation to scaling back the, the project to what we can afford so that we don't take on too much risk. But we're, we are keen to get this facility back up and running because we know that our people want to come back to work here and we know that other businesses want to see us rebuild and have a significant presence here in this month. Right. Now, when you say scaling back, Michael, does that mean that less people will work at the rebuilt factory? Will you be able to take back all the employees who want to work there? In terms of all of our full-time employees, we'll certainly be able to welcome those, welcome those uh, back to our, our rebuilt facility, which is great. And we'll have additional capability for another 30 to 35 staff as we look to progressively um, recommission the four manufacturing lines that we'll have operational here at the facility. How will the rebuilt factory deal with a flood that may be, if you like, a garden variety flood, not necessarily the exceptional floods of February and March, but how will the rebuilt factory deal with the fact that we are in a a flood-prone region? So what I'll be be able to add with two points, we will be doing 
a number of significant and costly flood mitigation works for this particular site. All of our services, which are the key items of considerable cost, um, such as you know, high voltage, um, cabinetry, compressors, pumps, etc., they'll all be lifted up well, well above the, the flood that we experienced in, in February this year and as will to a number of other flood mitigation activity works, strengthening the building, raising other um, key pieces of equipment up, putting in mezzanines throughout the facility and having a, a protocol where things that are at a lower, lower lying area, they'll be all quick release and we'll be able to move those, move those pieces, key pieces of equipment up to other areas in the facility that won't be subject to flooding. Did, did you consider other sites? Was, was part of your thinking or the board's thinking to possibly move the plant so that it is in a, a region less vulnerable? Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, but let's face it, Norco was started in the Lismore region. We are incredibly connected to the Lismore community and we want to have a, a significant presence here. But to rebuild this factory on another site would be around $200 million, and that's $200 million that we just don't have. We have had discussions with the government around that, and that wasn't a, a, a project that they would, they would be able to fund. So what we, will, what we are doing is making this site, which is a very flood-resistant um, site. It just wasn't resistant to the catastrophic events that we saw in February this year. Norco CEO Michael Hampson, and he was speaking there with Mick O'Rourgan. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. Sticking to the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales... When the Bureau of Meteorology announced another La Nina weather front was forecast to return to eastern Australia, very quickly, a meme popped up on social media and in the brilliant red font of Netflix, it read, La Nina, unsubscribe. Yep, the meme was tongue in cheek, but for people like my guest Prudence Clark, the news of another La Nina left her feeling very uneasy. She would gladly unsubscribe. Prudence Clark lives with her family in Lennox Head in the northern rivers of New South Wales, an area that was hit hard by the destruction of previous La Nina weather fronts. Now, Prudence, I'm probably underselling your feelings there. Tell me what drove you to write this piece about the effects of the latest La Nina and the forecast of it on people in the northern rivers. I think the effects of the last couple of La Ninas, particularly the floods that we had last March, uh, really underestimate how much it actually affected the Northern Rivers region in general. Even if we weren't directly, even if our houses weren't directly flooded, there's just this feeling of utter desolation and everyone in the community was just sad, I guess, for weeks on end. You know, not only did we have just relentless rain, but we had, you know, horrific flooding. We had loss of life, loss of businesses. There was no food on the shelves. There was no petrol at petrol stations. Uh, There was no telephone communications. A lot of people didn't even have power. And it just kind of went on for at least a couple of weeks. Uh, So when I heard that there was yet another the Nina front coming through, I yeah, I did. I felt utter desolation and concern for the community. 
And you've written an article about those feelings. Have you heard from others since that article has been published on the ABC about how it made them feel when they, they heard that, this, that, that these fronts were expected this summer? Yeah, it's funny. I guess I didn't think the article would be read by that, uh, by, you know, the community as such. But so many people have contacted me saying that they feel exactly the same way. So I guess in a sense that's comforting, but, you know, it also reflects, you know, the the spirit in the community at the moment. And yes, you know, people keep saying, oh, the Northern Rivers is so resilient and we all come together in times of crisis. But really, I think resilience levels have just been pushed to an absolute maximum. So... Yeah, I just I really feel for the area. So, Prudence, there is weather system coming at the moment. I think you're expecting rain any minute. But when, when you lie in bed at night and you hear rain on the roof, and sometimes that can be a romantic kind of thought in Australia, but I suspect the romance has completely gone out of it for you by now. It has. Everything is absolutely sodden already. Like, even just the back garden, everything, we don't need any more rain. It's just, it's unbelievable. So now when I hear the rain on the roof, you know, initially I think, ah, my garden, just getting flooded again. But I also think more broadly, as in, you know, I'm sure residents in Lismore aren't lying awake listening to the rain with any sense of romanticism. Mm. Um, Yeah, it's, I'm... To, to be perfectly honest, I am so sick of the rain. I can see why. What's it like when you drive into Lismore? It's about 40 minutes drive from where you are. Is that right? It is. It is. Um, it's It's really sad. It's, it's still a long way from returning to its former self. A lot of shop fronts are still boarded up. A lot of people haven't been able to move back to their homes Um you know, there's still all this kind of rubbish and um, all sorts of like furniture and things still piled up waiting to be taken away. So yeah, Lismore, definitely, I really feel for the community because even though they've, you know, been so fantastic in coming together and trying to reignite life back into their town, I think, you know, there's still a long way to go. What's it been like watching that on the fringes? Because your community was affected too, but nowhere near to the scale of Lismore. What's it like kind of being on the fringes of that? We all, well, I know myself and my partner felt incredibly guilty. I mean, we live on top of a hill. So, you know, we weren't flooded in the slightest. And although Lennox was affected to a degree, like Lake Ainsworth, our beautiful lake was just completely annihilated and it has only just returned to normal. Plus, we couldn't swim at any of our beaches. You know, those problems just seemed so minor in comparison to what happened in Lismore. Um, we had a lot of people from Lismore um staying in temporary accommodation in Lennox. So, you know, everyone was just donating clothes and food and, you know, whatever we could, but you really couldn't shake that feeling of guilt and, you know, like just and helplessness because really there was nothing we could do. You live right on the coast there at Lennox and I know, I mean, a lot of the rubbish and literally dead animals, everything kind of washed out into the sea just where you are. Has that all cleared now or how's it looking? It has. Um, it came back n- not that long ago, to be perfectly honest. The beach was pretty much unswimmable for a couple of months, um, yeah, due to all that rubbish. And also there was a lot of sewage in the water, so it was just deemed unsafe to swim. Um, yeah, it's finally 
come back, but, you know, now we're about to have yet another deluge of rain um, in the next few days, so who knows? They are predicting that this will be less severe, this La Nina. Are you preparing for it? Obviously, living on top of a hill, you don't have to, but is your community preparing for more rain or can you prepare? What can you do? I think everyone is regardless of where we live because I'm not sure but last time um, you know the supermarkets were completely bare it was honestly you couldn't even find an onion on the shelves it was just it was pretty crazy Uh, we had no water we had no uh, telephone communications we couldn't withdraw money because the ATMs were out of order but of course places were only taking cash because they had no power so it was a little bit stressful for a couple of weeks and so I think a lot of us have kind of you know we've got a bit of cash on hand and we've stocked up on just you know bottled water just just in case oh we went and bought a torch and some batteries because we were so unprepared last time. You know, we had no communications, no internet, nothing. So we couldn't even, you know, work out who was in trouble or what was going on. So uh, I think, I mean, I don't think we're the only people doing that, that's for sure. I mean, weather can't be helped, but do you feel like you received enough help? Like, did you, sometimes some of the people I've spoken to, they felt like they were a bit abandoned after the main event kind of thing. Yeah, I think that feeling is still pretty strong throughout the community, in particular Lismore. Um, and I, I really hope that um, if, you know, we are faced with imminent flooding again, that the town's better prepared and there's more adequate help because I know help arrived, but it was just way too late. Do you think the Northern Rivers is going to look quite different? I mean, obviously an awful lot of rebuilding has to happen, mm. but will it need to look different and how people live need to be different given that this has been happening you know in quick succession you've had these fronts come through absolutely i think the way we live and where us uh towns are located needs a complete rethink for sure um i also think you know the way uh water is managed and um The infrastructure of our towns also needs to be revised, personally, yeah. Prudence Clark, thanks a million for chatting. Thanks, Sinead, thanks for having me. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Many First Nations people have grown up eating a range of native fruits produced in their country, but not many of those fruits make their way onto supermarket shelves. Now one group of women in far north Queensland have a plan to cultivate them and turn them into products. As Tanya Murphy finds out, there are predictions Indigenous foods could grow into an industry worth billions of dollars. Hi, my name is Judith Bowen. I'm from Hopewell. I'm a DARPA lady. And we've got three others from Hopevale here. We travelled up to Malanda on a farm. They showed us these um, plants, most of the plants that we got at home to. We've got Davison plum, wild raspberry, lily pilly. And now we're making something out of those three, making a jam. We've got a lot of those plants around and we didn't know how valuable they were, like what we could do with it. Now we kicking around everything that we can do with everything we have planted up there now. Um, sauce, chili sauce, all kinds of sauce now we can. This gave us a bit of an idea of what we could do. 
Hi, my name's Daryl Lyons. I'm a Marawali man from my grandmother's country in southwest Queensland. We're here at the Food Incubator on a three-day program, which has basically been funded by Empower Foundation, which is a not-for-profit, totally aimed at increasing participation of Indigenous people in the native food industry in Australia. So this is off the back of a report that was done a, a few years ago, and it showed there was only 0.2 of a percent of Indigenous women who are involved in the native food industry. And from aunties and all the women involved, in reality, they're the ones who have a lot of knowledge around native food. So we felt there was a really poor statistic. So we've set up this foundation and acquired funding to run programs to actually show um, activities and give entry points to bring a whole heap of women together and girls. Um, we set up five hubs around the country. Um, we have a hub here in Cairns, which is for tropical North Queensland. So we've invited ladies from Hopevale, Yarrabah and Napernum, uh, and we've taken them up to a native food plantation and farm on the Atherton Tablelands yesterday to show how they can actually do production and, and, and ways to get into that. Then uh, we brought some native food product down from the Tablelands, and we've got two days in the food incubator, and we're actually showing them, and they're making... Uh, their own jams and chutneys and we're showing them how to brand it and create their own product so it's really activity based and really breaking down the steps to show how it is achievable to get into get into the industry after this program what would be the future plan for them to use this knowledge going forward yeah, the next step is um, we will try and break down some product that they can actually grow in the farm. So Hopevale and Napernum actually have a farm. So we can go, you can take that product, grow it there, and then we want to bring them back into the food incubator and they actually make their own product out of what they've grown and brand that and see if that's a product they could sell. Um, and that could, you know, create a new income stream for the community. And we're really trying to break down the barriers to show there's lots of support from state and local government and federal government to really make it easy and it's about not um, communities to go and invest and put a huge plantation in how they can actually do it really small scale and test and iterate and come up with a recipe or and grow a, you know a product and value add it and and test and do multiple or one product so it's about taking small steps to build capability confidence and a product. How big do you expect the Indigenous food industry to get over the next few years? Uh, there's a lot of prediction that it can grow into like a, a $20 billion industry with by 2035, and we're really at small scale right now of around $100 million. So there's a huge opportunity, and there's a real demand for a fully owned Indigenous supply chain of produced and owned and value-added and sold. Um, there's retailers around the country that are screaming for this, people around the world. So we're encouraging them to actually look at what other higher-value products they could put in, and also stuff that connects to their culture. So I think it re really um, provides a driver and an internal motivator to go and produce stuff that their grandparents and, and elders have produced and consumed, because the food is really high in vitamins and minerals that is actually healthy for everyone so it's such a, a good opportunity but what's important when we look at lemon myrtle and macadamia which are indigenous and native foods they're already gone overseas and currently no indigenous or traditional owners are benefiting from any of that so what's really important is how do we get them involved early uh, get them to lock up some of the ip and production and actually um, get the benefit out of what the world is seeking and is highly nutritious food. Hi, my name is Kaylin Jackson. I'm um, 
part of the Stolen Generation, but I'm from Yarrabah. I found it quite interesting. The Davidson Plum, we used to just eat it like that, you know? Get it and just eat it, put, put sugar on it and eat it. But eating it in the jam was really nice. Did you ever know that they could be a valuable way to make a business? No, I didn't until I came in here and found out that, yeah, there's something that we could be doing because we have it in our own backyard, you know? And if we can market from it, it'd be good for us and our grandchildren, you know, to give them something, pass on our, um, our experience, you know, and our knowledge. I'd love to take something back and I'd love to see something like this grow in Yarraba. And we have something that we can call ours, yeah. Kaylin Jackson from Yarraba finishing off Tanya Murphy's story. And that's Australia Wide for this Wednesday. Remember, you can podcast the show whenever you want to. If you head to the ABC Listen app, type in Australia Wide, you'll find us there and hit subscribe while you're there. We'd really appreciate it. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.